I always enjoy uh, preaching in, in Maine. Oh, I feel at home, and I grew up here, so that uh, that makes a, a big difference. My wife uh, also is involved in ministry. Uh, she heads a small groups, um, well, with a denomination that we've been connected with on the East Coast. And uh, she's here by herself right now. So, anyway, I'd like to read the scripture from uh, Isaiah chapter 40. We, uh, both my wife and I, write material for Bible studies. And uh, we have done the first chapters of of, uh, Isaiah. And uh, this particular passage uh, comes a bit later in our second book on this. And we hope to get this done sometime soon. The words then of Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 through 11. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling, in the desert prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low, the rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all mankind together will see it, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry out. And I said, what shall I cry? All men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass, the grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. You who bring good tidings to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good tidings to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up. Do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power and his arm rules for him. See, his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. A number of years ago, I, I read a study that was made by uh, Dr. Amand Nikolai, and uh, at the time, he was a clinical professor of psychiatry at, at Harvard Medical School. Also, uh, is a solid Christian and has written and spoken about faith and psychiatry. But in this study, he, he talks about uh, a particular clinic that he held, and it concerned the impact of of uh, absentee parents on children. In fact, in that particular episode, which he taped, uh, he said that uh, the children, some of them, were only a few weeks old. They were mainly uh, babies. And what he asked from the mothers, primarily mothers who were there, was that they ignore their children for a few minutes. 
And the clinical approach would be to determine how they reacted. And rather remarkably, when the, uh, when the film was slowed down so that you could see what was going on with, with uh, small children, there are some of them here today, but I mean not from that study, but, but from, the whole, from the whole perspective of, of uh, what was going on, the exciting thing was that, that these babies who were not mobile uh, were, seemed like in the, were moving and were lunging to get their mother's attention. All of which indicates that there is almost an innate desire uh, for comfort, especially on, with babies. And you certainly have experienced that. If you've been a parent, you understand that. And also, uh, <clears throat> as they grow up, uh, there's that desire for comfort, comfort that uh, can only be given through the parents. In this particular statement in Isaiah 40, when an <clears throat> Isaiah is, is told to proclaim comfort uh, to God's people in, in Israel, <clears throat> there is that understanding that we have that the only comfort that is really offered to us in this lifetime, as well as the next life, is the comfort that comes from God. If you understand what Isaiah is all about, the first 39 chapters uh, deal with the fact that, that Isaiah... Uh, spoke words of judgment to the believers who were, were disobedient. And he spoke words of judgment to, to bring them back into uh, leaving their disobedience to the point of becoming obedient. And that's precisely what happens here. And so the words that are used, uh, comfort, comfort, in, in Hebrew, what that actually does, it's, it's actually called uh, the idea of Emotional intensity. It's the mood that is, is produced when a Hebrew word is, a noun in particular, is doubled, a double meaning. For example, in chapter 26, uh, where we see the word shalom, shalom use, or peace, peace, it's translated in English as perfect peace. Because again, it's the idea of emotional intensity. And so God wants us to have this type of of intensity regarding his comfort. And so he offers that to the people of Israel through the words of Isaiah. This is important for us to understand. And um, all of us have, a, I think, a, an innate need for this particular type of comfort in order to make our lives more meaningful. Now, if you look at the, at the passage carefully in verse 2, it says something that sort of amplifies this. It's been translated, speak tenderly to them. And what it means literally in the original language is speak to their hearts. Give them absolute and total comfort. Now, that's a great thing to know. But that is uh, applicable not only to the people of, of a Jewish faith, but also to us in our own lives. But how does God give you and me comfort? And verses 1 through 11 very nicely lays out three reasons or three essentials that we need to have if we are to have God's comfort. Three things are discussed. It's almost like three voices are given. Three statements are made that helps us understand how we can have God's comfort. The very first thing is you need to see God's glory. If you look at verse 5, which is a conclusion of these first several verses, 
It says this, God's glory will be revealed. And the focus then, of course, is upon God's glory being revealed to us. Well, God's glory was a huge item in Old Testament history. You can go through uh, the first uh, five books of of Moses and even uh, into uh, a later book's history where glory is, is a vital component of the experience of the Israelites. Moses, in Exodus 33, cries out, Show me your glory. It's a powerful request. And God does show him his glory. Not a full measure because he couldn't handle it. Moses couldn't handle it. But God showed his glory. His overwhelming glory. And after the tabernacle was built and stated in in Exodus chapter 40, this statement is made. The glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Then after the temple was built by Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 11, the glory of the Lord filled his temple. And so God demonstrates his glory throughout the Old Testament. Do we have the same sort of understanding in the New Testament? Yes, we do. In fact, in, in John's gospel, particularly in, in John chapter 15, 17 rather, what is stated there is, of course, the high priestly prayer of Jesus. And he says this, And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Interesting. Interesting that this glory was there and that, that Jesus continues that glory. Then in John 17, later on, I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. Jesus is talking about giving his glory to his disciples. And in a sense, that is captured by us as well. And so when we're told that that God has given us glory and we've received that, you may want to to think with me of times when, when you've experienced God's glory in a very special way. Eight years ago, my daughter was pregnant with her second child. And so we thought things were fine. It seemed to be everything was going well in the pregnancy. But then an ultrasound as well as an in utero MRI revealed that the left side of the, the child's brain was missing brain matter. It was made up of cystic material of some sort. And that even the right side had jagged edges, whatever that means. That's what we were told. And so my daughter and son-in-law went to an Ivy League medical hospital close by, and they were told the situation was very serious. They needed to go to another place to sort of check this out, and they were told, terminate the pregnancy. Terminate the pregnancy. So they then went for the second opinion to another prestigious Ivy League medical school professor who was an expert in this field. This was in the greater Boston area. And they were told the same thing. Terminate the pregnancy. That's devastating for a young couple to receive that particular directive. But my daughter and her husband responded by saying, no, we won't abort. 
we're not going to do this. In fact, uh, we want this baby to be born, and we want you to help us in that birth. And so the physicians that were there uh, prepared for this birth in the, the hospital in Boston. They set up an emergency team uh, to deal with a, a baby that they said would be born blind, would need a feeding tube, and would probably or possibly die at birth. We were struck by that news and uh, weren't sure what to do. We, we were prepared to do a funeral. If you can imagine the, uh, the intensity of, well, you, you talk about the emotional intensity. That's where we were, and that's where my daughter and, and her husband were as well. So uh, the daughter was, my daughter was supposed to have a, uh, a special set up at the hospital where they would induce her labor. And so we had prayed and prayed, not knowing what the future would, would hold. Um, that was a difficult time. But then she was born, and we got there and just right after the birth as we were going into the hospital. And, and uh, my daughter-in-law and her husband called this baby girl that was born Gloria because they understood that they had been praying for God's glory to be seen and experienced and uh, Gloria came into our lives. Her birth was amazing. She was a nine on the Apgar scale, the health scale that's given for infants or for babies that are born. The same number that her older brother also had. And he was absolutely healthy. Well, the intervention team was dismissed. They had nothing to offer. And so uh, little Gloria astounded everyone because uh, she was able to see. We checked that out quickly. And she was uh, able to feed on her own. And so that none of the worries that we had uh, were anything that we had to be concerned about. And so as a result, I just want to point out that uh, little Gloria is now growing up. She uh, is now in the second grade. Uh, There were some developmental problems, yes. Some difficulties, but but she's an absolute joy to have around in the sense that she's always smiling and and is happy and is just uh, really well-adjusted in everything else. Now, like I said, there were some developmental problems, but she has baffled, and I mean this in a very serious way, she's baffled the medical community as time has gone by. They, they, just, they just don't understand that uh, she can do lots of things that she shouldn't be doing. And, and more than that, uh, they say, well, how can she appear to be so normal when half her brain is missing? Well, I mean, these uh, physicians didn't operate on the same level that, that our family was operating on because we believed that, uh, and we prayed, that the glorious birth would be to the glory and honor of God. And it has been that way. Absolutely an amazing experience. And as a result, 
Every time I see her, I think of the fact that she is God's glory. For us and for our experience uh, with her, uh, God's glory can also be seen in other places, in nature. I mean, we're in a spot in, on the island where, where uh, God's nature is, is revealed in a, in a glorious way throughout the year. And uh, God's glory is revealed in, in history, but more especially in Jesus Christ. There's an interesting passage that uh, you may have read through, but it really struck me. I had never really seen it for what it states. But it reads like this, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. To give us the knowledge of God's glory in Jesus' face. Now, what is that all about? I mean, what is that saying? Well, it's a remarkable insight from the Apostle Paul. And biblical scholars tell us that God's glory will be seen by by everyone when Jesus comes again. And this is true. No, no difficulty there. But we need to remember that God's glory is seen in the present as well. And you may have a story where you've experienced God's glory in a special way. But here it says you only need to catch a glimpse of Jesus' face. You only have to imagine the face of Jesus, his humanity, his deity, and understand that this is something that should strike you. There's a, there's a hymn that, that goes along with this. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full into his wonderful face, and the things on earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Powerful statement. We need the comfort of God's glory in our lives. That's where the first dimension of, of comfort is. The second thing is that you need to see his word. Now, verses 6 through 8 give us a contrast between the significance of, of people compared to the significance of God's word. And as it turns out, there really is no contrast because one is uh, clearly superior to the other. And we'll look at that. But God uh, has told us in this that people's promises and their lives in general, are like grass or flowers in that they appear quickly, but they also disappear and uh, move on very quickly as well. The people, on average, don't last all that long. Uh, they just simply pass on. And this has happened because humanity fell into disobedience, decay, death, and dysfunction in the Garden of Eden. And we know the story of uh, Adam and Eve and, and their fall in that garden. But by contrast, God's word lasts forever. And if we listen and believe this word, we will last forever as well in a state of experiencing God's comfort and God's glory. And that's really the great thing. Now, I grew up uh, like I think a lot of people in Maine, but I grew up in a non-Christian home. And uh, <clears throat> my sister and I were sent to Sunday school. That was, you know, an appropriate thing to do, I guess. But my parents didn't really attend church. Oh, they would go to church on a Christmas or something like that, Christmas Eve. But that was pretty much it. And so uh, 
I didn't have a lot of uh, faith experience, although I was introduced to Jesus and, and understood something about him. But when I went away to university in, in uh, another state in Texas, of all places, uh, I was exposed to other thoughts, such as agnosticism. I didn't even know what agnosticism was until my best friend said that he was an agnostic. So I said, well, what's an agnostic? Oh, he said, we don't, uh, we, we're neutral about faith. We, we just simply uh, don't know, and we, we uh, sort of say we're ignorant of all these things. So anyway, I, I uh, was influenced by that. Didn't know quite what to believe. I was exposed to all this kind of, uh, let's say, liberal thinking in religion. And then, of course, I went to uh, graduate, uh, graduate school in Texas as well. And it was there where I was confronted by, uh, well, I, my heart was really pricked by the work of the Holy Spirit. And I, I recall that uh, one of the things that I was encouraged to do by being led by God was to read the Scripture. And so I began to read the Bible. And, and I read it through, and, and I got to Proverbs. Now, I had spent some time, obviously, reading it. But Proverbs 16.25 says this, there's a way that seems right to a man, but the end is a way of death. And so I asked the question, and that question was, which way am I headed? I mean, where am I going, and, and what's happening to me? And so I renewed my faith in, in Jesus and trusted in his word, and it changed my life. Now, if God's word can produce such amazing results, at least I had experienced that. Why do people so quickly dismiss it? Is it because they have fallen into the trap of disobedience and dysfunction and they reject the only thing that brings hope in a world of despair? Let's be honest about what the world is all about. As we're told in this text, there's nothing there, nothing meaningful there. And uh, it's only a place of despair in a way of death. Uh, they've rejected God's comfort and encouragement, and that's incomprehensible to me. And when you read the Word of God with trusting faith in that Word uh, given to you in the power of the Holy Spirit, it gives you a sense of permanence. It gives you a sense of eternal value and, and worth. And uh, I think that's what we need to hear. Now, as you know, this is the year 2017. I often forget it and put down 2016. But anyway, uh, this is the year when we celebrate 500 years of reformational history. But before this occurred in 1517, the Bible, the God's Word, was really only available in, in most places, in most countries, in, in Western Europe at least, in Latin. Now, not many people could understand or read Latin, but that's what it was all about. So not many people were able to, to read the Bible, but the Reformation gave God's Word a very special place. And a new emphasis was given to translating the Bible into the various European languages. So revival and Reformation occurred because of the work of God's Word and the work of the Holy Spirit. And millions of people received comfort and received the promise of eternal life. Remarkable thing. 
They did this through the Word of God and, and the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, I just want to say that God's Word is remarkable. In my own experience, I balanced the Old Testament, the Proverbs passage, with Hebrews 4.12, a verse that I'm sure you're familiar with. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, and it penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. It did for me, and it changed my life. The third thing that is mentioned is the idea that we need to see God's authority. And that's found in the last verses that are in this passage. We're told that God rules with a a sovereign lordship in, in mind. That he isn't some local deity who is limited to one tribe, one family, one ethnic group, or one nation. That God is Lord of all. And if you look at verse 10, it states that his arm rules for him. That's a very special way of saying, uh, in the ancient world it was understood, but it's an ancient way of saying that, that God rules with power, strength, and authority. That he's in total charge of everything. Uh, thankfully, we're not. But this is what it says about God. And this is good news. Even good tidings that you, uh, well, you're introduced to verse 10 by verse 9, where it says, here is your God. This is your sovereign. This is the one you need to listen to. This is the one you need to be connected to. And all these things are mentioned in a very special way, that the sovereign Lord comes with power, reward, and recompense. That he comes to reward you and to make up for any and all deficits that you've faced in this lifetime. Perhaps you've been a victim of absentee parents. Well, God wants to be your father and your parent. And he does it the right way. He's always with you and he gives you the comfort that you need. Uh, Perhaps you've been a victim of of low self-esteem. Well, God gives you a sense of well-being and a strong sense of self-esteem in Christ. Or perhaps you're lonely, that you have needs and so forth. Well, God fulfills that aspect of your life and gives you a sense of his comfort and company. Uh, It's a pleasure to know this God, this sovereign Lord. But he not only comes in a positive and gracious, powerful way, we're told that he also comes like a shepherd. Now consider this carefully. This is really important for you to understand. Over and over again, the Bible depicts God as a caring and loving shepherd. Just to mention a few. In Second Samuel, in Isaiah, Micah, the Psalms, extensively in the Psalms, in Ezekiel, all pronounce God as the great and loving shepherd. Why is this important? Why is this significant? Well, it tells us that the ruler of the universe is not an arbitrary, unfeeling king. No, he's, he's more like a shepherd who carries young lambs in his arms. And you can picture that. And he holds them close to his heart. You see that in verse 11. It's an amazing revelation about God that he truly is our, our father and our redeemer, our provider, and our comforter. And we're told the same thing in, in the New Testament. Jesus speaks in John 10 and says, I am the good shepherd. 
The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. And then later on in the same chapter repeats the same theme. So he's not only the good shepherd who comforts his sheep, he gives his life in order to save his sheep. Now, is this so difficult to understand? I don't think it's difficult at all. When the world so desperately needs comfort today, and it does need comfort, why do so many people reject the idea of trusting in this great and glorious shepherd? Jesus is the one who died and gave his life for you and for me. And he's the only one to lay it down and to take it up again. So that you and I might have this comfort that's being talked about here. Comfort in trials and temptations and, and even during times of happiness. So why dismiss this comfort? I'd like to close by reading a statement that is based upon the Bible and that comes from the Reformation. It's an incredible statement. And it's from a Protestant catechism called the Heidelberg Catechism. But anyway, uh, the very first question is this. What is your only comfort in life and in death. Now, that gets right to the main point of, of what we're talking about, the idea of comfort. And the answer that's given in this remarkable statement and this very personal catechism is this, that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood, and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that, that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. And because I belong to him, Christ by his Holy Spirit assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. What a great statement. One of the greatest questions you, you face in this life, what is your only comfort in life and in death? And truly I trust that that answer also speaks to your heart because it is biblical and because it's remarkable. Well, God wants you to have comfort, real comfort. That's the main point of all of this. This is what's being said here. Comfort in both life and death. Now the question is, do you have this comfort? You've got to personalize this. Do you have this comfort? You know that the comfort that only the great shepherd can give is there for you. And may God bless you as you continue finding, developing, and growing in his comfort. Amen. Let's pray together. We thank you, Lord, for all that you do provide. We thank you especially for the great measure of comfort that you provided to the people of uh, Israel centuries ago. But we also need to have you speak words of, of comfort, to speak words of your power and your love for us. We thank you that you're our sovereign Lord, but we also thank you that you're also our great and, and glorious shepherd. We thank you for Jesus, the one who has provided a true example of, of a shepherd who who gave up his life that his sheep might live, and for us today that we as sheep might live forever. Help us to understand this comfort, apply the truth of it, 
We praise you for your goodness. We thank you for the assurance of salvation and the reminder of what you have done for us even as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. We pray this then in Christ's name. Amen.